0: Hey there, this is Glenn Lowry, this is The Glenn Show. Uh, I am at glennlowry.substack.com and also at my YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Glenn Lowry Show. And this week I'm talking to Matt Rosenberg, who's the author of What Next Chicago? Notes of a Pissed-Off Native Son. This is an important book published by Bombardier Press, available at amazon.com or at the Barnes and Noble online bookstore, not on the uh, the legacy bookstores on the ground, but uh, you can get your hands on this book just by going online and ordering from Amazon or Barnes and Noble. So welcome, Matt. Thank you, Glenn. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you. You're writing about my hometown. Can you take a minute just to tell people a little bit about your own background, uh, how it is that uh, you are related to the city of Chicago? Uh, and uh, came to be writing this book. I
1: I grew up here. I moved to Chicago as a six-year-old kid in 1964. I lived here for 30 years. Uh, My dad taught at the University of Chicago, and he was a sociologist who, in his own way, uh, understood shoe leather news gathering, which I think may have been something that I inherited a little bit of, (laughs) Uh, you know, uh, I remember things like being taken uh, to the Rumble in uh, Lincoln Park, uh, led by the Yippies and Jerry Rubin in 1968. Just uh, I'm telling you, I was 10 years old and I I don't know how, but I spotted the undercover cops, probably because of their bad polyester slacks and their shirts with the uh, pointy collars and they're sitting on their Dodge Polaris. And it was always a Dodge Polaris, this big clunky sedan for the undercover uh, cops. And they were, look- <laughs> I-, I tell you, just these weird things stick in your memory. Uh, and they were looking out, you know, and here are all these hairy, smelly people, intense, you know, doing Lord knows what, smoking their weed. And there was... Uh, there was discord <laughs> there was discord in the air. There was social unrest brewing then too. And these guys looked terrified. And then the next day, Glenn, as you know, in front of the Conrad Hilton uh, downtown, <laughs> yeah. you know, the whole world was watching. And we 1968. had 1968. Yeah, we had a police riot, you know, and, and so anyway, my background, um, about thirty plus years in journalism and public policy. Both in Chicago and Seattle. And uh, I've never really left Chicago, even though technically I did in 94. And then last year, uh, or actually 2020, watching everything blow up after George Floyd, I trained a keen eye on my old hometown. And it. What? It got to a point where I had to come back and dig
0: in myself and, and let's talk about that. But I mm-hmm. I just want to take note of the fact your father, Milton Rosenberg, a professor mm-hmm. of sociology at the University of Chicago Sociology mm-hmm. Department. Mm-hmm. People may not appreciate that that department has a an amazing history of sociological study of urban life and Chicago being the laboratory. And you could just tick off the books, the many, many books mm-hmm. that have had a wide influence in the field of sociology and ethnography that mm-hmm. are grounded in, in that department. So that's that's hallowed ground as far as I'm concerned as a social scientist who grew up mm-hmm. in in Chicago and who looked at that. I lived on uh, the South side, just a couple of three miles from the campus of uh, the University of Chicago in Hyde Park. and Always uh, thought of that as uh, a vital part of the intellectual and cultural life of the city. And, you know, it's close to home for me. Mm -hmm. Thank you. But anyway, so you were motivated to write a book about Chicago, having not lived there for some time, although you have Mm -hmm. the fond memories of your growing up and so on. Mm -hmm. Pissed off. Pissed off Native Son. Mm -hmm. What's up with that? Well, I, I
1: cataloged, you know, the things that were really concerning me. And face it, you need a snappy title sometimes. Um, <laughs> I'll be honest. Uh, but, you know, I'm looking at the schools, which are utter, utterly failing to teach uh, black and Latino students particularly. Uh, you look at the National Assessment of Educational Progress data. You're quite familiar with that important standardized test called the Nation's Report Card. You've got less than one in five Black uh, fourth and eighth graders reaching the basic proficiency level in reading and math. Um, on the SATs, <clears throat> on the SATs, it's similar. Uh, you know, you look at uh, you look at really the way the the court system operates. You look at the broken court system and you realize that some uh, warp and woof has occurred and that uh, something supposed to resemble social justice has replaced criminal justice. You see that the victims uh you know, are are the new perpetrators and the perpetrators are the new victims. You look at this uh, rampant industry of excuse making for criminal, violent, deadly conduct, you get pissed off. You look at the way that the old ways of the Irish and the Italians with their own institutional corruption in city government has now been replaced by black and brown uh, operators, uh, many of whom are doing the same thing. And you know that, uh, you know, as Dick Simpson, a political science professor out here at the University of Illinois has pointed out, only one in 10 bureaucratic criminals get caught. That's the rule of thumb in the industry. So, you know, right now we've got three or four out of 50 uh, Chicago aldermen under federal indictment. One of them, by the way, is named Daly, Thompson Daly, the first, and he is the, uh, I understand right, I think the grandson of uh, Richard J. Daley, the first, he kind of looks like him. He's on trial right now. So if three or four are under indictment and there's a mul- multiple of 10, the guys who aren't being caught, you know, that could be off. But you, you might be looking at well more than half of the city council engaged in nefarious deeds. But the maxim here is don't get caught. And I'll tell you what really pisses me off. You know, uh it's it's this kind of hypocrisy uh that we that we have here. Um on the one hand we've got this sort of political culture of grievance, right, where everything is due to racism and preference. But then you look at the political system again now run primarily by Politicians of color, they're engaging in their own insidious uh, insiderism and preference. Uh, The preferences are to the people who are connected and wired, which, of course, is just the way it's always been in Chicago. But you can't keep perpetuating that system of political privilege and insider privilege and then come back and talk about systemic racism, which, of course, begs a larger question, Glenn that I know you've talked about with many of your other guests. It's like, yes, you know, real, real, harsh, systemic, anti-Black racism foisted by whites is part of our country's history, and it's a dark stain on our country. We have to ask what now in 2020 or 2022 is to be done, you know, uh, about all the, the problems that we have. And, and so um there's just a lot to chew on here in Chicago and I think obviously these are the same issues uh being faced in New York in LA
0: St. Louis right on down the line okay let's uh let's review the bidding here he's a pissed off native son everybody he's pissed off what's he pissed off about schools are failing the kids are not learning how to read and write what's he pissed off about violence that has really become epidemic and is a deep problem in the city, unprecedented. I will let you do the talking, but so it seems to me. Uh, And what's the root of that? Uh, What's he pissed off about? Poor governance and corruption, uh, which is not new to the black run city of Chicago in 2022, but which is not helping anybody either. Again, if I get this wrong, correct me. and I, I wonder where are uh, the chroniclers of this? I mean, you're, you're, you you got to fly in from Seattle uh, <laughs> to do this. I mean, why aren't the native sons and daughters of Chicago whose job it is to chronicle what's going on in the city, uh, writing books like the book that you've come out with, or are they, and I've missed something. Seems like I haven't seen that. But, uh, yeah. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me step up to that
1: one, because I do want to be clear. It is chronicled. But it's piecemeal. The pieces don't get put together. That's what I tried to do in my book. And if one looks, for instance, at all of the endnotes in my book, you'll see loads of articles from the daily newspapers. Uh, We have a pretty rich actual news infrastructure here you know the the latest iteration of online local journalism is very strong in many ways there certainly is some uh, left leaning bias there but i do not join with other conservatives in uh saying there is a whitewash but i do believe there is a failure to put the pieces together and that especially relates to Uh, The way that the conversation occurs, and frankly, Glenn, does not occur around race and responsibility in Chicago. And there is a deep, deep uh, proclivity uh, toward the elevation of excuse making. Just recently, the Cook County chief judge, a gentleman named Tim Evans, who's you know, own history here is worth delving into. And I did delve into it in my book. Uh, He said, we cannot hold young black men who kill accountable because if they're under 25 years old, their prefrontal cortexes are not sufficiently developed to know right from wrong. you know, I suppose, what are parents for then? And that begs a larger conversation. Then we had uh, Cook County Board President Tony Preckwinkle saying that the cause of the deadly violence is uh, historic marginalization and disinvestment in communities, Um, the disinvestment. And so all of this stuff gets play as legitimate commentary in the media without really being challenged so in that way the media around the nation uh, are falling down on the job and you know when you start to go around and collect news articles like i'm doing i'm trying to uh develop murder rates for uh some of the biggest cities for 2021 and you end up you know you're at the memphis commercial appeal you know Okay, Uh, and you see the article, the early January 2022 article that every city has, right, with the last year's murder totals. And then you see the reporter trotting out that list of causes, right? It's very interesting to look at how causality is portrayed. And it's almost a standard approach in the news industry now to just tick off the societal factors. So there's this idea that because of COVID, Young black men must go out and kill each other, you know, or um, because of economic challenges or educational challenges that the only natural response is to go fire guns at each other. And, you know, this is something that's been talked about for years. Uh, And, you know, uh, people like John McWhorter, who I know is a, a frequent companion of yours on this show, yeah. Uh, have called it woke racism. And I know you've delved into this uh, quite deeply, but it's out here, it's real, and it's having an effect in Chicago because it builds uh, a tolerance of the violence. And as Shelby Steele has pointed out, um, you know, this is coming from a place of white guilt, but black activists have learned uh, for quite a long time now how to capitalize on this hustle. And there's even a monetary aspect to it. You know, how do you sort out which nonprofit organization (laughs) is deserving of the money and and how do you not? And how many dozen are there? So, um, you know, I wish we had more transparency in our analysis and reporting. I wish, Glenn, and this is huge, no one ever talks about this, I wish we had a real-time data project that reported on the actual outcomes of the criminal proceedings in Cook County Circuit Court because we elect these judges, right? So let's have it out there instantaneously for everyone online. Okay, Judge Smith in courtroom 207 had in front of him yesterday these following five cases, you know, carjacking by a guy was out on probation for three prior carjackings, what was the case disposition if there was a plea deal or if there was a trial that took six days? What was the case disposition there? And right on down the line, and it's in an easily viewable, easily accessible database so we know what the outcomes are and we're not just dealing with piecemeal reporting. Um, We don't have that, you know? We ought to similarly have like a vetting of the NGOs, you know, So, and I could go on. I, I, I ran a transparency 501c3 for a while in Seattle, so I, I kind of think like a government transparency wonk, but we could use a
0: lot more of that here in Chicago. Let, let me see if I'm following you. You're saying, first of all, that the ideology that is uh, being foisted as a rationalization or cover uh, for uh, this awful violence uh, is rooted in a kind of black victimization narrative that gets uh, uncritically uh, reported in mainstream media. Do I do I get that right? You're yes. saying that there's money to be made in fostering such uh, phony narratives about what's actually going on because the deep roots of this are uh, family structure and uh, disorder in these uh, neighborhoods and bad values being propagated to kids and also lax law enforcement that at the end of the day doesn't hold people account. Uh, There's money to be made. You want to chronicle where the money is going, who's raising the money, these NGOs that are claiming to be uh, working on the problem. You you think they're uh, not so effective and that uh, people are uh, are grifting? I mean, again, not to put words in your mouth, but Mm -hmm. I just want to be clear.
1: I think some of that is going on. I can't document dollar amounts, and I'm saying right up front, as I just did, the analysis has to occur. There are NGOs that are doing good and important work. Uh, there was one that raised over a million dollars for primarily Black-owned businesses after the uh, peaceful demonstrations in 2020, you know, and putting those signs in the window that said Black-owned, boy, that didn't help at all. Um, so <clears throat> uh, I, I am saying, yes, further scrutiny is necessary. I'm not saying I've conducted all that scrutiny, but. Um, but, you know, I'll give you an example. So a man of the cloth shows up in a news report very recently because one of the two young men has been caught who in December went into a luxury auto showroom and did a smash and grab that made national headlines. They have um, high-end wristwatches in this uh, high-end auto showroom. It's, you know, it's, yeah. how, it's how they roll. Um And they came in, they smashed the case holding the wristwatches and took upwards of $1 million in high-end wristwatches. So that's a a couple of Rolexes at least, right? And it was sensational. And the owner of the place, uh, an Italian guy named Lou Perillo from the neighborhood, old school guy, he spoke out. He came right at Lightfoot, it, you know, and they sent the city inspectors they, uh, into his uh, business and cited him for violations, just like in the old days under <laughs> Daily. It was it was beautiful. Um, so finally, one of these guys gets arrested. There's an article, and there at the end of the article is minister saying, if the Chicago business community would invest more money in our you know, marginalized communities, maybe we could see less of this kind of activity. Now think about that. That's like the Italian guy in the old days (laughs) in the north end of Boston who says, nice restaurant, you got here. Yeah, you got there. Be ashamed (laughs) if anything bad happened to it. (laughs) Exactly.
0: That's the old shakedown. Yeah,
1: now, you know, on the other hand, Okay, to take the more charitable view of that comment, which I guess we should always try to do, and I'm sorry, I'm from Chicago, so it's hard, but uh, we need more uh, community development corporations investing in uh, construction trade training programs. So, you know, let's just all of a sudden swing the wheel of the car far over to the left, let's say, and look at some of the success stories here because we never want to forget about solutions. I'm sure you'd agree. So, I agree. Some of the stuff that I came across in my adventures on the South Side down in Woodlawn, there's a nonprofit called Project Hood run by a very dynamic pastor. Corey Brooks. Corey Brooks. Everyone knows Corey's name. The Republican gubernatorial candidates come to kiss his ring. Doesn't bother me a damn bit. Uh, some political reporters have a problem with that. Corey walks the talk all the way. And one of the things he's running is a program primarily geared for ex-convicts that teaches them uh, how to uh, make a career in the construction trades. More than that, they had a special unit last summer for black female electrician trainees. And in July, 18 black female electricians were graduated and certified to go work in the trades. Now these jobs uh, are union, they pay, I know the laborers union pays like $44 uh, $44 an hour for a journeyman, electrician, pipe fitter, carpenter, plumber. Yeah. That's going to pay more because there's more skill involved. Um, down in Pullman, the Chicago Neighborhoods Initiative uh, is running a micro lending program where a huge amount of their loans goes to uh, black male ex convicts who are taking twenty dollars or $40,000 at a pop. Through micro lending to buy one or two Sprinter vans, and they're going going to work for the uh, evil empire of Amazon, essentially. But they're running their own businesses, doing package delivery. And it just so happens that the South Side and South Suburbs of Chicago are studded with uh, Amazon distribution centers. Uh, sometimes they get uh, special tax incentives from local governments and. That's a big point of contention with some progressives. Uh, very often those are sealed and not disclosed. That, that's probably a legitimate transparency issue, but the bottom line is there are programs doing great things right now. We just need to replicate more of them. And of course, there are charter schools, some of which have been quite successful. The school choice issue in Illinois, and Chicago, Glenn, that's an interesting conversation. And at some point, you know, we ought to spend like two
0: minutes on that, too. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's let's do. We're talking about solutions. I just want to notice that Corey Brooks is uh, is still in the midst of that hundred days on the rooftop uh, thing that he's doing to try to raise money for his for his enterprise. And uh, he's helping to get the. Uh, black men and women, uh, the kinds of skills that they need to join unions and to uh, be able to work as craftsmen, electricians, and so forth. This is part of the solution. Uh, uh, Project Hood, that's helping others obtain their destiny. I think that's what that stands for. That's right. Corey is affiliated with the uh, Woodson Center in Washington, D.C., Robert Woodson, Mm -hmm. and uh, I have pledged 10% of the net proceeds from my Substack newsletter, of which this is a part. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a tithing support gift to the woodson center to help to further this kind of work i just want mm-hmm. people to know that uh, we Fantastic. are four square behind yeah. the heroic people working on the ground in these communities to try to bring opportunity and hope uh to people try to quell the violence try to h- help people realize their their human potential develop their skills and so forth which is a uh, as far as I'm concerned, the only way forward. But yeah, let's talk about schools. You say charter mm-hmm. schools, some of them are doing some good. It's very, very controversial. And mm-hmm. I should ask you also not to neglect the concerns about police brutality and whatnot mm-hmm. in Chicago, which is the flip side, I think, of the of the violence uh, issue. People don't trust the police and all that. Mm-hmm. But Let's talk about schools. Let's talk about policing. You bet. Um, There are upwards of 100
1: charter schools in Chicago. Um, Overall, they do better. Uh, There are several analyses that support this. Uh, When they don't do well, uh, just as with other schools, they should definitely be closed down, and they have been. There are problems, however, Uh, two mayors in a row, Rahm Emanuel and then Lori Lightfoot in the 2019 teachers contract or attendant to the contract in a separate written agreement agreed to a cap on the growth of charter schools. That is bad. Last year, the Illinois state legislature, uh, which, you know, has been under one party rule for quite a while and has done a a number of deleterious things to affect the fate and fortune of Chicago's minority communities, Uh, they approved a uh, moratorium on the closure of Chicago schools. Now, we know that school closures have been a third rail politically in Chicago. I'm sure you recall that Rahm Emanuel, when he was mayor, closed, 49 of them at one time. Less reported was that the school district's uh, list had originally identified some 200-plus schools that met the criterion for closure. The criterion are two things generally. One is uh, occupancy at less than 70% of capacity, too many empty seats for too long, And people are voting with their feet. They are leaving Chicago schools en masse. The black population in Chicago has declined by one third between 1980 and 2020. So that should be a huge wake up call for the way that we run this city and run our schools and the way that we don't deal with violent crime. Now, Importantly, there is a state tax credit program. Some people call it voucher's light. Many people don't even know that Illinois has this. It's a good start, although in the end, we need full-on raging school vouchers. And uh, it appears that it would actually work, that the state constitution may not actually bar it, although some people believe there's a clause in the constitution that can be read uh, you know, as very strict on separation of church and state. That said, Invest in Kids is a five or six year pilot program that needs to be made permanent. If you live here in Illinois, Glen, and you give money uh, to a scholarship granting organization, which will then turn around and give the money to a generally lower income, often minority families so that their children can attend a private school, often a Catholic school, then you will get a 75% credit on your state income tax for that money that you gave. It's a good thing. It got approved with Democratic uh, lawmakers' support. Two times, our Democratic governor, the billionaire, J.B. Pritzker, has tried to torpedo uh, that program, calling it a special tax break the last time around. Two times. The greatest lobbyists in the world, kids and parents and teachers, have gone down to our state capitol and beat back on um, the governor's attempt to undermine this uh, vouchers light program. So there's some hope there, too. But in okay, the let end, me, let, me interrupt,
0: yeah. let me interrupt for a minute, Matt, uh, because I'm thinking about my son, Alden Lowry. I am mm-hmm. from Chicago. My son's. Lives in Chicago. He is uh, actually a journalist, who works mm-hmm. at WBEZ. Yes. And is an editor at the Opportunity and Equity Desk. I forget exactly what they call it, but you know what mm-hmm. I'm talking about at WBEZ, Absolutely. which is a public radio station in Chicago, a terrific public radio station. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Alden and his lovely wife, my daughter in law, Adrienne, uh, who is a public school teacher in mm-hmm. Chicago, mm-hmm. were vociferous in their opposition to the school closing program arguing that the schools that were being closed were vastly disproportionately in uh, black areas and that the teachers were being, uh, you know, uh, unemployed or uh, kicked to the curb or whatever it is by the school closings, which are, as I understand, consolidations, bringing kids into, uh, you know, from three districts into one school or three schools into one school because the schools are under uh, subscribed. So what would you say to the liberal... Democratic voting, black middle class, defenders of the system, members of the Chicago Teachers Union, uh, 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 opponents to the school closing campaign who argue that it's uh, uh, disproportionately, adversely affecting um, African-American teachers?
1: Sure, Uh, first of all, the teachers that uh, work at schools that will be closed uh, are guaranteed jobs within the system at least this was the way um, it was reported in North Lawndale when this came about in the winter of 2020 they were going to close three schools that was a real flashpoint Um, but yeah it's hard it's hard this is a free market approach this is called the portfolio strategy for urban school districts you have a portfolio of schools Some are charters, some are, for lack of a better term, plain vanilla, regular public schools. Then you have special academies, right, that aren't charters, but they're special. They may be college prep. Uh, There are four or five, at least, super high-performing high schools in Chicago that are not charter schools, Walter Payton Academy is one of them. There are others. So there's a whole range of types of schools, but you have to manage your portfolio aggressively. And the thing is, this is <clears> the <throat> hard part, Glenn. North Lawndale is emblematic of a black Chicago community that has lost a dramatic amount of its overall population. Uh, In recent decades and then too, you have the Chicago School District encouraging cross neighborhood boundary migration within the school system. In other words, so your child uh, has total freedom almost uh, to my understanding to, you know, go halfway across town to another school if it's a better school and so. Uh, schools, you know, thin out hugely in terms of the student population. And when you're looking at dozens upon dozens, even hundreds of schools within the Chicago public school system that are operating at, you know, anywhere from 30 to 60 percent capacity. uh, And the overall trend in enrollment is down, 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 while interesting, the 20 uh, 2010 to 2019 trend for charter schools in Chicago was up, up, up in terms of enrollment. You got to take a hint from the data and, you know, you can't keep operating physical plants and paying, paying custodial staff and teachers to operate a school, you know, that's at 30 to 60 or 70 percent capacity. So it is very hard. And some parents are worried because, man, you know, look, my kid at least found, us, and this is so sad, Glenn. My kid at least found a safe way to get to and from this particular address of this school. We're used to it. He knows what empty lots to go through so he doesn't get waylaid by gangbangers and hassle. That is actually a real thing here in this city. Yeah. And it's tragic. Um, it's one of the biggest issues at the street level that you hear about. No one really ever talks about it very much in the media. Safe passage to and from school. Um, But, you know, it's hard. You've you've got to consolidate resources when their usage is thinning out, you know, to well below half.
0: Okay. Uh, I want to underscore one aspect of what you're just saying now, Mm -hmm. which is that uh, the Democrats in the state legislature and the governor, left to their own devices, uh, would have clamped down on charters more so than they have done and would have rescinded this uh, incentive that's built into the tax code for people to make gifts to support uh, kids going uh, outside of the public school system. But this hasn't happened precisely because the lobbying of uh, grassroots-led parents Mm -hmm. who are trying to get their kids educated uh, in uh, any uh, the best way that they can, they've descended on Springfield and prevented... This uh, this uh, liberal democratic reflex uh, to come down, uh, clamp down on charters and and other non-public school uh, education providers. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about what that grassroots uh, looks like uh, in terms of uh, parents who are clamoring for more options for educating their kids? Is it is it uh, predominantly black and Latino, for example? Um, there's an awful lot of that, yes. Um, and
1: and I want to be clear: the restrictions on uh, growth of charter schools is occurring at the Chicago city level, city level, uh, by the mayor. Okay. But yes, the proposed restrictions on the tax credit scholarship program uh, benefiting private schools and minority families. That was advanced, uh, the restrictions by a Democratic governor, and it was Democratic legislators who saved the day because of this lobbying. And what is the face of that movement, if you will? It's not entirely uh, black and Latino, but it's probably well over half black and Latino. These are aspiring you know, lower middle and middle income homes. Uh, There's a strong, strong Latino community in Chicago, Glenn, and that is one side of this face that we're talking about right now. And I wanna stress.
0: I am a widower who remarried four years ago to a somewhat younger woman and I need life insurance if someone relies on your financial support whether it's a child aging parent or even a business partner you need life insurance life insurance can give you peace of mind that if something happens to you your loved ones would have a financial cushion to pay for things like rent mortgage payments loans education costs and everyday expenses having coverage through your job may not be enough Most people need up to 10 times more to properly provide for their families. Typically, life insurance gets more expensive as you age, so it's smart to get a policy sooner rather than later. Click on the link in the description or head to policygenius.com and answer a few questions about yourself. In minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. You could save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with policy genius. Their licensed experts will help you understand your options and apply for a policy. The policy genius team works for you, not the insurance companies. You can trust them to offer unbiased help and advocate for you at every step until you're covered. Since 2014, Policy Genius has helped over 30 million people shop for insurance and placed $120 billion in coverage. Head to policygenius.com to get your free insurance quotes and see how much you could save.
1: that when I walked all over the South side and the Southwest side, you see it. So some of these students and parents, um, these are the mothers and fathers who own body shops, auto radiator shops, um, money wiring businesses, uh, Mexican bakeries. If you walk around certain neighborhoods, it is almost stunning to see the proliferation of Latino-owned businesses in Chicago, um, and you know they do not have so much of a culture of grievance as near as I can tell. They just come here and they get to work. They uh, are succeeding dramatically, but quietly, in the construction trades, and you see this everywhere. Um, I've even gotten soliloquies from. Uh, You know, uh, retired black school teachers talking about the Latino work ethic when I wandered into a store at 75th and Vincennes. I I talk about that in the book. It was a real eye-opener. Here's Emmett Till Way, isn't that what that strip is called? That's right. Just south of uh, a portion of 71st Street that was renamed after Emmett Till and now is you know, be set with garbage and broken glass, most discouragingly.
0: People may not know, excuse me, uh, mm. people may not know, Matt, that uh, Chicago is about one third Latino, one third black and one third white. I mean, it. The what's going on amongst the Spanish speaking uh, population of Chicago is very important to the future of that city.
1: It is, Glenn. And honestly, people keep asking me, what's your next book? And I tell them, well, oh, I'm going to do something about hiking called Hike or Die. But that's really just a joke. <laughs> if I, although you never know, I might. The Pacific Northwest is pretty amazing. And, and I think uh, exercise is is really rather huge. But when I think about possible <laughs> next book topics, you know, I, I think about I think about this this quiet underground world of of the Latino presence in cities like Chicago and what their stories are. And a lot of them come from serious hardship and very challenging environments, Um, but they just come here. um, Their families, uh, not entirely, but an awful lot of them stick together and they get to work and uh, they have skills and they just go for it. And you look at like West Englewood now, you know, There's all these chickens in yards because that's what Latinos do. And as I was getting a tour of West Englewood from this great guy, Daryl Smith, who I kind of need to tell you about because he's organized some guerrilla actions to break open formerly white labor unions and get loads of black men and women hired. That's a good story. Um, you know, is telling me, yeah, man, those damn chickens, man, our people don't like those chickens are out there cackling at like six in the morning. But, you know, that's partly <laughs> that's partly how Latinos roll. So they're coming in, they're buying property, they're, you know, establishing family households in formerly black neighborhoods. And, you know, when the blacks came in uh, to certain neighborhoods uh, 30 or 40 years ago, they were taking over from the Polish, you know? And now, sadly, and I think it's very sad, Chicago used to be a place of opportunity for African-Americans, and there's a whole history. Neighborhoods like Bronzeville, you know, black-owned banks, all kinds of black businesses, a history that goes back to the early 1900s, a time when we also had a horrible race riot, you know? and I talk about that in some of my book. Mayor Daly the first was like 17 years old and part of a, a group called the Hamburg Athletic Club, which was Irish gangbangers, if you will, less banging and more politics. And um, they played a role in a race riot that uh, broke out because uh, a black youth crossed an imaginary line in Lake Michigan on the beach and went into the yeah. white area. What was that, 1919? 1919. It was a huge conflagration. But, you know, back then, the Lithuanians and the Poles were killing each other, too. It was, I mean, you look at the history of this place. It's always been kind of rough and tumble. But the people have have also been very open, warm-hearted, and approachable. And it's still that way now. And when you come back to it, You know, we've got a tyranny of the minority. There's about 5% of our population um, that's not living with real moral authority, 5% of our households, this is my unscientific estimate, Glenn, that are perpetrating violence and going to uh, uh, police brutality and police management and police accountability A cop I know did a 95-5 seat-of-the-pants estimate, and this is a guy I know and trust. He said, yeah, about 5% of cops are rotten, crooked, and abusive. 5% are total rock stars, go above and beyond. And the other 90%, you know, they're decent. They're just
0: trying to get by.
1: Yeah. Now, would they say something if they saw abusive behavior by another policeman or corruption? That's the big question. One thing that was identified in the 2017 report by the Obama Justice Department, it came out right after he left office, was that there's a culture of silence, what the mob used to call omerta, right? That cops will not speak up when they see hinky stuff going on. That could be true. And there's there's stuff to talk about with regards to police accountability and trust.
0: OK, now you were uh, citing some statements by uh, county executive uh, Tony Preckwinkle by um, the chief judge Tim Evans, uh, implicitly uh, Kim Fox, the state's attorney, I assume, is implicated in this, uh, which is uh, a soft on crime kind of uh uh, let's, uh, make excuses and so on. And I'm, I'm just wondering where that ideology comes from, because, uh, these are not, these are not stupid people. These are, these people can look and see what's going on just like everybody else. It's, it's, uh, I'm reluctant to say that they're so, uh, craven and cynical that, uh, they, they know, but nevertheless, mouth these platitudes because they think it's going to get them elected or it's going to get them uh, favorable press or whatever. Um, aren't they also partly motivated by uh, a feeling that you can't solve the problem of disorder and, and, and criminal violence by locking up everybody? Uh, they don't want to see uh, uh, the Cook County jail overflowing with these young uh, kids. Uh, they, they think mass incarceration is a real issue. Maybe they believe a little pie in the sky that social programs and spending more money will do some good, but it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, would it, for the business community to take a more uh, socially responsible uh, attitude toward uh, investing in opportunity? Let it be Cory Brooks mediated opportunity for the kids in the city. So, is there not another side to this uh, law and order uh, issue? And, you know, w- w- we're pro. Enforcement, I am. I, you know I am from the things that I've said in the show. I'm very worried about the consequences for ordinary people who cannot afford to move away from the problem and get their kids out of it. But uh, is just simply coming down with a hammer on the bad actors uh, a viable way of solving this problem? No. I agree with
1: the impulse that we can't just arrest Convict and incarcerate our way out of this, I think finding the middle ground is 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 the you know is the nirvana the holy land here, I think that when people across the city are afraid to come out of their homes and go walk the streets of their own neighborhood when downtown has now in the first six weeks of 2022 turned into an accelerating crime zone uh, on top of a record year that just came before it, Um, there's a problem. So, for instance, bail reform, which was instituted by Chief Judge Tim Evans in Cook County in 2017, if it were applied to first-time nonviolent offenders, uh, particularly That's the easy one to agree to. Yeah, don't give someone a high bail. Don't make them wait behind bars before trial. Um, If they're a first time offender and it's a nonviolent crime, the problem is guys with multiple uh, gun law felonies under their belt, uh, you know, get busted for a new gun law violation and they get let out lickety-split, you know, paying maybe $250 or $500 bail, all too often they'll go out and do something violent, uh, carjacking or up to and including murder. And then there's probation, Glenn. It's not just uh, this lightning rod of bail reform, which, as you know, was a huge issue in New York, L.A., and San Francisco, as well as Philadelphia. Uh, the conservative critique you've heard many times that these are all prosecutors uh, to whom uh, intermediaries of George Soros have donated money, and I don't dismiss that. Um, that's a piece of this. There's a philosophy here, and it's rooted yeah. in it's rooted in aspirations in a in a hope for social progress. I always want to run away from the idea of my opponent is a bad person. Right. And unfortunately, you get that a lot, I suppose, on both sides, particularly from the left, though. If you talk about accountability, reasons not to kill, reasons not to carjack the role of parents, you know, you're a finger wagging conservative dogmatist. So that's a real problem. We have a polarized dialogue, but no. So let's make probation work better. Um, But let's not have to hear about stories like Ella French, the Chicago police officer being killed during a traffic stop in August in Chicago on the South Side by a man who was on probation for a felony. Let's not have to hear about Melissa Ortega, the eight-year-old girl in Little Village, Latino Mecca, um, just last month killed by a 16-year-old gangbanger banger who was on probation for three carjackings. Oh, and it was called intensive probation. Um, I wonder what constitutes probation these days. Let's not have to hear about another Michael Brown, 16 years old, slain this last week in Bronzeville uh, as he walked home uh, from his uh, Chicago Military Academy Uh Uh, A high expectation city of Chicago high school, not even a charter high school, uh, slain by a suspect now charged who had um, numerous uh, prior offenses. And, uh, you know, let's not have to hear those stories. So let's make the social programs work. And that comes to vetting NGOs, something I talked about at the beginning. What are the performance data? How do you evaluate whether a violence prevention program is really doing its work? And there are different um, measures that are recommended by different people. Some say don't just look at the escalating uh, number of murders or number of carjackings each year, but instead look at the number of young men and women who go into a particular violence program, like, say, Chicago CRED, one that is run by Arnie Duncan, uh, former President Obama's education secretary and now a likely candidate for Chicago mayor in 2023. Look at the number of young men and women they bring into their uh, program and then look at what percentage of those uh, people, you know, turn their lives around. And lives do get turned around sometimes. And also, we can't measure some of the success, because these are carjackings that don't happen, right? These are murders that don't happen. So um I do err- you
0: know do you know the crime lab? Uh, I think that's what they call yeah. it at the University of Chicago. Jens Ludwig, uh, I think is the guy who's running the show, My friend Harold mm-hmm. Pollock, a longtime friend of mine who's a professor in the School of Social Service mm-hmm. Administration at the University of Chicago. Don't they do this kind of uh, programmatic evaluation work? And uh, to the extent that they do, what what are they saying about separating the effective from the ineffective uh, crime prevention intervention uh, initiatives? I need to dig in deeper to that, and maybe they do too. Uh, There is
1: important work being done at the U of C Crime Lab and also at Northwestern University by uh, a researcher named Andrew Papakristos, Uh, Oh, yeah. Done some very significant granular analyses of who exactly it is that's involved in the shootings and how whom you associate with has a great, great impact on whether you end up with
0: a bullet in you or fired at you. And, you know, people should look this guy up, Andrew Papachristos, because Mm. I've seen some of these papers with the maps You know, Mm -hmm. the networking and, uh, you know, the gang affiliations and uh, who's killing whom. And it's a very tightly knit network of mutual affiliation. It's not like random, uh, mostly not like random. uh, There are, of course, random killings, but it's it's uh, a lot of it is uh, nested within the structure of affiliations amongst a relatively small number of people. You say five percent.
1: And at one point, and I have to go back and double check this, at one point I read one published report that Papa Christos had, uh, and this was maybe several years back, estimated that there were about 100,000 gang members in Chicago. That might be a little high now, but if that were true, that would represent less than 5% of our total population of 2.7 million, and that goes to, uh, you know, my coinage of the term that a tyranny of the minority. So most people, if you go down, you know, to Washington Heights or Roseland or Englewood or Chatham um, or Auburn Gresham, you'd be surprised how many solid looking blocks, well-kept homes, uh, you know, small business people and others, are going about their lives in an honorable and decent way. And they are law-abiding, but they are also very scared. So it it seems to me less of a stretch, less of a judgy moral thing. When you start to talk about parenting and the young men who've run off the rails who are making this city, you know, a modern-day terror dome, sort of this post-apocalyptic place, sadly, it's less judgy. And it's less moral if you acknowledge at the same time that it's a very small minority and it just is what it is. But as to your point about um, better evaluation of the violence prevention programs, I think it's needed. I'm not aware of any definitive research which shows us how to evaluate. I want to dig deeper on that, but it's important Now, because the push is coming for more spending, even from the city budget on violence prevention programs and myself, I cautiously endorse more spending by the city. What we've learned, uh, the people at the programs have learned that the private sector and the foundations, they're tapped out after three or four years and they're like, look, you, you need to get taxpayer support for this and they know that now at most of these programs, but the city has not really stepped up. They stepped up from about 36 million in 2020 to I think maybe about 80 million in Chicago in 2021. And there are people, including Arnie Duncan, who are now calling for hundreds of millions to be invested. And when you're talking about uh, a city budget in the many billions, um, you know, maybe a hundred, couple of hundred million spent on some of the better violence prevention programs, if we can determine which ones those are. Maybe that's a fair thing to do. But at the same time, Glenn, it's not an either or thing. I think the mayor and the city council members, including now the six socialists on the city of Chicago Council, up from one before. Six 20. out of what, 40 out of 50 but there was only Six. one there was only one of them before 2019 so that's the direction our electorate is going in if these aldermen alder persons excuse me and the mayor would step up and use their bully pulpits to talk about parenting you know and what about parenting classes they exist um you know i think the hard part is for you know a lot of white people they're just walking on eggshells they're scared to death of being called racist because that's such a trope now. And I'm the guy, I'm the white Jewish guy here to say, look, you know, I've been to the South Side. I've talked with black people in their homes, Latinos and in their workplaces. And frankly, conservative values live. On the south side of Chicago and the west side of Chicago, very few of these people would probably ever vote for a Republican or call themselves Republican, but they echo the values of, you know, my grandmother, Glenn, and probably your grandmother, too. And they're like, daddy's got to be there. Parents got to watch over their children.
0: Don't let your kids run wild. Now, this is especially poignant, I should point out, in view of the fact that- mm-hmm some eight out of 10 kids born to a black woman in the city of Chicago are born to a woman without a husband. I mean, so I want people to take on board the juxtaposition between the reality that a lot of daddies are not on hand and the statement that uh, Matt just made, which is that a lot of people in these communities believe in traditional norms and values around family and child rearing they are simply often unable to realize those dreams in their own lives. Would you agree with that? I would. And well, unable,
1: I guess, is the key question. Unwilling or unable. Unwilling or unable, okay. And you know, that fine point right there came up just yesterday on Facebook. And uh, a Facebook friend who happens to be an African-American woman and uh, read a post of mine, and she said, basically, look, what makes you think that black men don't want to be there for for their kids? What you need to understand is that the police are so aggressively busting them for any old thing that they can, that they end up with a felon label slapped on them, and then they can't find work. And the implication was they have to then adopt a street life, a subterranean economic life in order to provide for their kids.
0: Well. To which I, you say.
1: I um, I talked about some of the job training programs out there, but I talked about avoiding those decisions in the first place. But here's something I didn't say, but that was at the top of my mind. I interviewed a Chicago cop for my book and I've, I know a lot of them now, The cop I interviewed in my book, of course, using a pseudonym because, you know, they can't talk to the media, um, not the rank and file. Um, He said, you know, look, we don't even make drug busts anymore. If I see a crack pipe on a dashboard when I stop the car, I don't even cite them for that because they're not going to be prosecuted. What I'm looking for is illegal guns. And they have to see, like, a furtive movement. They just can't start tossing the car in the trunk even to look for the guns. Uh, the same cop told me another story about a guy who's openly selling cocaine. This was pre-COVID in front of a downtown nightclub. And he was notorious. And the cops would 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 be parked on it from across the street looking at it. they bust him time and again. He'd be out on the street within hours. So, you know, drug busts ain't happening too much anymore uh they they sometimes yes but not really like they used to so the whole so, mass incarceration narrative um if you look at the numbers uh you know i mean pr- total prison population peaked at 2.3
0: million in 2008 according yeah, to- it's going down no I would, okay so you're saying it's bs you're, you're saying that facebook critic who says don't talk to me about black father absence because they'd be there if they could be there but the cops are rousting them and they, they end up with records and they can't get jobs. You're saying that's BS? In the end,
1: probably yes, but I want to be careful here because like I feel this woman coming from an authentic place. And also what I discovered in the course of our conversation, uh exchanging comments, was there are commonalities too. Like, for instance, we both support more emphasis on getting young black men into the construction trades, right? I mean, there were productive lines of conversation that came out of this conversation. So I don't want to diminish or demean anyone. But um, yeah, there is this sort of reflexive uh, uh, tendency to say the police still have it in for young black men and uh, that's what's going on. And that, Glenn, brings you to something I know you're quite familiar with, which is this whole... Frankly, feel the junk math, you know, the whole disparities and disproportionality. It's like, oh, well, everyone has a pre allotted share of arrests or college graduations that they, as a racial group, must hit. You got to hit your target based on your percent of the population. And, you know, sorry, human beings are imperfect, right? So they're going to be unequal inputs. And therefore, there are often going to be unequal outcomes. And uh, we we can't always pin that on race. Now, in years past, more easily, yes,
0: you could. Uh, on the positive side, you mentioned the, this uh, unofficial mayor of Inglewood, uh, mm-hmm. the guy that's got eight or 10 residential properties and mm-hmm. the working on getting people into unions and stuff like that. I can't remember his name. Talk about him a little bit, uh, what he's doing, What and the impact that you're meeting him had on, on your reporting about Chicago.
1: You bet. Uh, Daryl Smith is a really neat guy. He's now about 52 years old. I spent a day with him down in Englewood in the 6300 block of Morgan. Uh, the next summer there was a mass shooting right up the block, but you know, Daryl's block is well put together. He did three years for involuntary manslaughter. <clears throat> when he was 18, he was riding in a car when some stuff happened. Um, he got out, yeah. he, he chose a straight path. He just went to work hustling. Uh, in the end, you know, he, he benefited frankly from black generational wealth. He used some of his own wealth, and he owns 10 residential properties now. His grandfather worked in the steel mill and worked at night repairing boilers and furnaces. His father worked in the Oscar Mayer meatpacking plant in Chicago, saved his money, did the same thing. They bought homes as an investment. Daryl said there weren't no realtors back then. You know, (laughs) if your neighbor was going to sell her too flat... What, what Daryl's grandfather would do would be to buy it. He was uh, from Clarksdale, Mississippi and had a sixth grade education, but he knew about annuities and he saved his money and he had an astounding work ethic. Um, Daryl ran tow trucks. He sold secondhand goods at what he and his dad called Jewtown, Maxwell Street Market. Oh, yeah. Daryl has the snow shovel gospel. He gave it to me. I I cited that in the book. He's like, look, man, this is Chicago. We're going to have some snow. Here's what you do. Get yourself a snow shovel. (laughs) Start earning some money. Save as much as you can. Buy a snow blower. Now you can do parking lots, you know. And as I'm sitting there in his backyard, guys are driving by like pulling a fast food trailer to set up on 63rd and Daryl is like, he's singing everyone's praises. He's oh that guy's Italian beef is the best. He's making a living at this. He's been doing this for like 10 years. This guy over here is doing that. Then he takes me down 69th street. He's like the mayor of Englewood, right? He's like, check this out, we're gonna go in here. These guys just started selling uh, Englewood branded sports apparel. We go into the store, he's like a tour guide from the local Chamber of Commerce. This community is in his blood and he's collecting rent. While we're talking, people are coming, dropping off checks or handing him rolls of cash because he owns 10 properties. He could easily move to the suburbs, uh, but he doesn't. And he's involved in community charities. But the biggest thing Two things, two last things about Daryl. Number one, he told me the story of agitating for change in the white-dominated labor union. So back around 03, you know, Englewood, by his description, 99.9% black, right? So one day he sees a new construction site. Everybody on the site, all the workers, they're white, (laughs) white or Latino, And they're coming. There's like Michigan plates, Indiana plates, because, you know, how Chicago is, you know, we're next to a couple of other states not far away. And uh, he's like, "This, this doesn't sit right. So they lay down in front of the trucks. They lay down in front of the cement trucks. They went all Gandhi on these dudes. And it was <laughs> kind of cool. And, and, you know, very MLK, right? So they got hauled away to jail. But you know what? Eventually, eventually a deal was struck, right? And they got jobs. They got inclusion because the other guys didn't want interference at their job site. And uh, over the years, uh, according to Daryl's estimates, some 950 black men and women have now gotten jobs in the laborers union. And this is an easy ramp up on the learning Uh, and uh, 44 bucks an hour a journeyman. That's pretty darn good.
0: Um, That's a fantastic story. Daryl Smith. I can relate to Inglewood because my mother and father met at the Inglewood High School uh, in the early 1940s. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I lived lived for a few years at 82nd and Green, which is a stone's throw from what you're talking about right there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I remember the old Capitol Theater on Mm Halstead. I remember Vincennes running south from uh, 75th going south and and, uh, 79th, just west of uh, Vincennes on the north side of the street. Mm -hmm. There used to be a pool hall that I'd hang out with. It's right across the street from a Roberts Motel. I mean, this is going Mm -hmm. way back. Yeah. uh, Yeah. It's in my butt. man. I can remember getting on uh, CTA and going down the North Michigan Avenue after I had changed Mm -hmm. my clothes so I'd be happy halfway presentable when I wanted to go shopping uh, for mm-hmm. a gift for my young wife or something like that. It was magnificent mile. And I thought I was mm-hmm. stepping into another world. What's it like now? Wow. Um, partly empty, partly boarded up, very
1: unsafe. Um, part of what's really sticking in my crowd right now is here in 2022. Uh, just like last year, um, downtown, is turned into a very, very sketchy place. Uh, and it's a shame because it's in some ways the heart and soul of the city. And that's saying a lot considering all the great neighborhoods there are. Um, but uh, I checked some of the crime data. District 18 and District 1, a seven mile stretch from 31st Street on the south up to Fullerton, 2400 on the north, going out just a mile or two west, maybe out to Halstead, maybe. Um You got crime up in one of those districts, 175 percent over year to date last year. Sorry, 158 percent in one of those districts and 75 percent in one of those other districts. And that's against only a 26 percent jump in serious crime citywide uh, so far this year compared to the same time last year. But it's still going up. And last year was a very bad year. So what's going on down there? We're talking about aggravated battery, uh, aggravated sexual assault, theft, burglary, robbery. Um, You know, overall now we're starting to exceed citywide murders last year. And last year was the highest number of murders, about 800 in 25 years. So, you know, we've been hearing that as COVID would recede, that uh, so would the violent crime. I hope it does. Not seeing that yet, but Michigan Avenue downtown, very emblematic. And, you know, when I went down into Roseland, down in the wild 100s, as you know, Glenn, that very same Michigan Avenue, right, uh, that runs downtown goes all the way to the far south side of Chicago. And there's a neighborhood named Roseland that was first settled like in the 1850s and 60s by Dutch settlers and until the 1970s, they had a beautiful local shopping district with ornate historic architecture, beautiful flavor
0: uh, on Michigan Avenue and Roseland down between. man, 100- uh, I just want to interrupt to tell you and mm-hmm. everybody else. I graduated from Harlan High School, which is located on 97th and Michigan Avenue, Whoa. just a little bit north of the Roseland community that you're talking about, you know, in the mid 1960s. Mm-hmm. And it was half white. The high school's uh, population was half white when I was a student there in the early, mid 1960s. And and this is part of the thing, right up
1: into the early 70s, there was, you know, it was maybe a fleeting moment in time, you know, um, where Chicago neighborhoods were integrated. And I mentioned in the book, you know, I ran into some black old timers walking the streets of Chicago and they greeted me like I was Barack Obama or something. Just a white guy on the south side. People were like, "Whoa! Good to see you. How are you today?" right? And and as I also mentioned in the book, black people on the south side have always had my back. You know, if I was on the train going down to 63rd and Stony, they'd be like, You better be careful, man. (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, 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 I'll be fine. And then I'd get like a cross-eyed look. Yeah, you better be careful. Yeah, but um, that was the thing in Roseland. There was that integration. It was the same in in Auburn-Gresham, too. And people loved their neighborhood shopping districts. And then things just changed. Uh, And one man named Antoine Dobine described it to NBC News. He's from West Pullman, which, as you know, right next to Rosalind, he said, you know, Mm -hmm. along around sometime in the 70s, things changed, you know, and now we got these parents with these young men on their couch filling up their guns with bullets in it. He said, it frustrates me real bad. They've got to say, get out of this house, get rid of that gun, get right, get straight. But he said, no one will speak up. They're afraid to come out of their homes. And when I walked down Michigan Avenue in Roseland in the fall of 2020, you know, it looked like Aleppo, Syria after Bashir Assad's army got done with it. It was not good. There's fly dumping. There have been fires. There's guys selling drugs on the street. There's people under the influence of goodness knows what walking and falling down it's just not good and there is a plan and let's acknowledge this there is a plan called invest south and west a plan uh drawn up by the administration of chicago mayor lori lightfoot to go at downtown roseland and about 10 or 12 other neighborhood downtowns and they've done the preliminary work and it's important to build uh platform for private investment. But this goes in a way it circles back around to Tony Preckwinkle and what I was talking about at the very beginning. You know, she talks about uh, historic disinvestment and marginalization. Well, you know, human capital is huge, right? And before private money is going to come into a formerly grand, now bedraggled neighborhood downtown on the south or west sides of Chicago, they've they need to see to start with that the baseline condition is that the place does not look like a war zone and that the baseline crime data is not going to scare them away. But so it's kind of a, a, a chicken or egg thing right now, but it starts with families. It starts with the young men and women. It starts with a couple of entrepreneurs who can maybe take a chance and then draw more investment. But why is somebody going to open up a business in a storefront in Roseland right now on Michigan Avenue, it 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 just looks like you know the deep throes of hell. Um, no smart person would invest their money there in any kind of business. Uh, there is a donut shop that's been there for 50 years, black owned, great place. They're hanging on, you know. And then there's like one or two other stores that sell you know sportswear and uh, cell phones. And there was a great steakhouse that kind of got run out of business by the city over permitting issues, also black owned, and that had been there for years. Um, It's really hurting. Now, Glenn, you remember the CTA red line, right? The North-South Transit Spine.
0: uh, Oh yeah, right down the
1: Dan Ryan Expressway. Exactly, you know right now that it goes to 95th. It is to be extended, finally, 60 years after they built out to 95th, it is finally to be extended to the city's southern boundary at 130th on the largely black south side of Chicago. Well, better- That's huge. It it is huge and better late than never. And, you know, respect to the the Chicago politicians who worked it, but I gotta say, they should have worked out one a long time ago. 60 years is a long time now on the more white north side, The CTA red line has gone all the way to the city limits at Howard Street for for years. I think it was already built in through a a prior rail line that the city bought. So that's part of it. But, you know, who I don't understand how people stood for that and and how elected officials could have let it take so long. So they need infrastructure. They need investment. There's an important success story uh, next door in Pullman which had been hit very, very hard uh, with, with, you know, poverty, uh, low education, closed steel plant, and they turned a large formerly industrial parcel into a gleaming uh, success story, uh, retail and distribution park. And that's where that micro-lending program popped up, uh, Chicago Neighborhoods Initiative. So, you know, you've had actors, throughout, like David Doig, who runs the Chicago Neighborhoods Initiative, who ran the Park District under Daley II, guys are rockstar in neighborhood economic development. They've done things in Englewood. They've done a pilot program for getting new homes built on empty lots because we have a huge problem with abandoned or vacant properties. Uh, there's about 20,000 abandoned or vacant properties owned by the city, and there's maybe, maybe roughly Three times that number in private hands. Uh, and, And that makes neighborhoods scary and unsafe. So you need people, you need activity, you need what Jane Jacobs, of course, years ago called eyes on the street in the death and life of great American cities,
0: you know, and there aren't eyes on the street. I just want to underscore, I mean, throughout this interview, you have called attention to opportunities for both private and public money to make a difference. It's not as Mm -hmm. if you're taking a laissez-faire, hands-off, just leave them to their own devices Mm -hmm. approach, but it's got to be smartly invested and it needs to be accompanied by other kinds of changes that have to happen in families and uh, in neighborhoods. So, uh, I, I, I just want to make that point. Uh, we need to close out here, but but uh, what's going to happen in your view? You say what next, Chicago? Mm-hmm. Well, I want to ask you that question. What's next for Chicago in your view? Because this could go south, couldn't it? Very much so.
1: I mean, top line analysis, Glenn. It could be a not so uh, a not so long uh, glide path. To near death, or it could be a uh, more gradual glide path to death or just deeper dysfunction and despair, or there could be a dramatic turnaround. I think it would take uh, a really strong mayor. And we have a chance in 2023 to elect one, who it might be, I'm not sure, I think a mayor who can really manage, a mayor who can speak the truth, support police, uh, support the expansion of school choice, who can really roll up their sleeves and work with the best NGOs and private investors, but who can really reach people in the community. And that's hard. That kind of- Is Ray Lopez that guy? Ray Lopez. Uh,
0: could, tell people he, who Ray Lopez is.
1: Yeah, he could be. Paul Vallis could be too. He's more of the white technocrat, but boy, does he know the policy. It depends where the business money settles, Glenn. That's huge. If Paul gets uh, eight to ten million, I think he's in. Ray Lopez is a super interesting dude. He's about the only Chicago alderman who explicitly calls out. Um, you know, troubles with the institution of the family uh, and, and who calls out generational gang culture as uh, the primary causes for Chicago's violence. He's Latino, he's a Democrat, um, and he happens to be gay. I mean, so what really? But he's sure not some Republican dude, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And he has uh, time and again uh, rebutted uh, mayor Lori Lightfoot's insistence that systemic racism is behind the city's big troubles. So to me, he's a very interesting guy. We need more public servants who will speak new truths to the new power in the way that he does. I'd love to see him run for mayor. His name has been mentioned. There's a bunch of other potential contenders. Um, I think it really matters who our mayor is. Now, you know, Eric Adams is interesting to watch in New York. Uh mm-hmm. The, you know, the halo is receding already. But then again, he has rolled up his sleeves, too, and the show has barely started. So I think that in terms of general type, Chicago could use a pragmatic Democrat of color as mayor and someone who strongly supports letting police do their jobs while absolutely holding police accountable. Someone who supports vast improvements um, through free market philosophies in K through 12 public
0: education. Uh, That's what Chicago needs. I assume the Obamas would be behind an Arnie Duncan candidacy.
1: They would very much. And our friend John Cass, you know, jokingly refers to Arnie as the white shadow. And sure enough, all the Obama power players behind the scenes like David Axelrod, and other factotums lower down the food chain are lining up behind Arnie. And I interviewed Arnie for my book, and I don't know if I share my friend John's grave concern about him. He seems like a, a, a smart, caring guy, and he has really walked the talk in the last number of years. If you're cynical, you would say, oh, well, he started a a... Uh, uh, a violence prevention nonprofit precisely. So he could have street tread when he ran for mayor. Um, and maybe that's really true. I don't know. Um, the thing is, would he go far enough? Will the next mayor use their bully pulpit to call out missing black daddies? You know, uh, yeah. will, they, will they take on the Chicago teachers union? Cause and we haven't had a chance to talk about them now, maybe another time. They are the 800 pound gorilla here. Uh, you know, fighting to to retain whatever of their monopoly they can with the cap on charter school growth, with the moratorium on uh, school closures. And now with the election coming soon of all Chicago school board members, normally that would be good rather than having them all appointed by the mayor. But with their political campaign fund, the teachers union will probably own every single Uh, board member on the Chicago school board When by 2027 they're all elected so we've got a lot to deal with we need a mayor who's really got a pair Glenn
0: (laughs) (laughs) okay okay Matt now I asked a friend who will remain unnamed what should I ask Matt Rosenberg Uh, John Cass likes him he's a shoe leather journalist who's got a big book about Chicago he said I know what he's going to say about teachers unions what does he have to say about the police union Frank, very good question.
1: Um, you know, and I, I'll say this. They need to change, too. They need to change, too. And there's a consent decree right now issued by Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul. It came after a federal consent decree that somehow didn't take. Um, if our police are going to be effective, they are going to have to make more progress on specific reforms identified in the consent decree. But more than that, uh, and so the police union stands in the way of certain reforms, and some of them are very militant. Now, at the same time, I got to say, I've been getting to know an awful lot of Chicago cops, and they are, uh, on the whole, a stellar bunch of people. They're smart, they're funny, they're educated. They're educated. Some of them are writers. Uh, they come from the hood. Uh, they they bleed blue, right? So let's not bash cops either. But yes. Their union and their union head can be belligerent and can stand in the way of progress. And there are problems there. There is that code of silence. There are scandals of plenty over many years. So, uh, you know, there have been raids uh, to seize weapons where they busted into the wrong house and held a woman captive for 40 minutes, mostly naked because she was getting ready for bed. That's been settled now. There have been settlements into the hundreds of millions of dollars. These guys have work to do. And so it's like with the teachers union. The problem is not so much the rank and file. The rank and file are full of good, decent, hardworking, fair-minded people. Uh, The leadership can be very belligerent. So... My take on the Chicago Teachers Union is, you know, their institutional leadership needs to become more humble, more willing to compromise. And if they want to make progress and be supported publicly and politically, politically by the mayor and the city council, they need to give a little. They need to give more
0: than a little. Thanks a lot, Matt. Chicago, a case study in urban America, 21st century deeply complex uh, a lot is at stake and uh god i'm praying for my hometown i really am i've been with matt rosenberg uh, he's the author of uh what next chicago notes of a pissed off native son uh marvelous journalist and uh, very very happy to have had you on the show thanks for your time matt glenn it was a great pleasure thank you for having me you're welcome